0: Page five hundred and fifty. In these. What did I say? What? You said nineteen, seventeen. Seventeen. Sorry. Five hundred and fifty is right. Hear me, Lord. My plea is just. Listen to my cry. Hear my prayer. It does not rise from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come from you. May your eyes see what is right. Though you probe my heart, though you examine me at night and test me, you will find that I have planned no evil. My mouth has not transgressed. Though people tried to bribe me, I have kept myself from the ways of the violent through what your lips have commanded. My steps have held to your paths. My feet have not stumbled. I call on you, my God, for you will answer me. Turn your ear to me and hear my prayer. Show me the wonders of your great love, you who save by your right hand those who take refuge in you from their foes. Keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who are out to destroy me, from my mortal enemies who surround me. They close up their callous hearts and their mouths speak with arrogance, they have tracked me down, they now surround me with eyes alert to throw me to the ground, they're like a lion hungry for prey, like a fierce lion crouching in cover. Rise up, Lord, confront them, bring them down with your sword, rescue me from the wicked. By your hand, save me from such people, Lord, from those of this world whose reward is in this life. May what you have stored up for the wicked fill their bellies, may their children gorge themselves on it, and may there be leftovers for their little ones. As for me, I shall be vindicated and shall see your face. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with seeing your likeness." This is the word of the Lord.
1: The second reading is from Ephesians 4, and it can be found on on page 1175 at the back of the New Testament, starting to read at verse 11. So Christ Himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip His people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. And become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love
2: Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts be pleasing to you today. Amen. So, I wonder what you see when you look in the mirror. Some people quite like, um, they enjoy their own reflection. In fact, little children just can't get enough of it, can they? I don't know if you've ever watched one, but when when you're tiny, there's nothing more captivating and enjoyable than your own reflection in a mirror or a a shop window. Little ones um, are usually quite delighted with how fine they look, and I'm sure that God grins just as widely as they do, as they enjoy his handiwork. But as we get older, it becomes less socially acceptable to admire yourself in shop windows. And as we become more aware of others and of our own shortcomings, we perhaps delight less in what we see. And as we delight less in ourselves, we look less. And as we look less, we can tend to forget what we're really like. Perhaps we hold a mental image of that young man or young woman that we once were. We can lose touch with ourselves as life goes on, and some of us end up losing that joy in God's creation altogether, sadly. But as the makeover programs on the TV remind us, the first step to making the most of your appearance is having an accurate impression of who you really are. No good wearing clothes that are far too big or far too small. You need to know what you like. Years ago, there used to be a program on Channel 4. I don't know if you remember it. It was called, most alarmingly, How to Look Good Naked. Do you remember that one? The first thing that the participants were invited to do was to step into a 360-degree mirror room and take a long, hard look at themselves. I always considered this to be a very, very brave thing to do. These ordinary men and women would stand in front of the mirrors in their underwear, with the whole world watching, and be encouraged to really see themselves as they were. Not as they used to be, and definitely not as they wished they were, They are ordinary people. They weren't supermodels, but as I remember it, the program aimed to remind people that beauty comes in many shapes and sizes. And it sought to encourage the participants to see the good in themselves. And to help them work, perhaps, on the bits that were less appealing. They were encouraged to start with a realistic and accurate impression of themselves and to build suitable flattering outfits based on good foundations. Well, you may by now be wondering what on earth I'm talking about. What has this got to do with our Bible reading? But I hope you'll see the relevance in a moment or two. Paul writes to the Ephesian church with three pieces of advice. His first is that they should be themselves themselves. Be who you are made to be. We're all different, beautiful in our diversity. As somebody reminded me only this morning, that's why they like welcoming, because they see how very diverse we are as a church family. The first step is to be yourself. It is to recognize who you really are. God has gifted us all in different ways, like the people in front Of the changing room mirror, however, it does take courage to take a long, hard look at yourself and acknowledge the shape that you really hold. Not who you used to be, not who you'd like to be, but who you actually are. When we look with God's help, we usually find that we're not as bad as we feared, and nor are we quite as good in parts as we imagined. If we give time to God and pray for understanding, for learning, wisdom and vision, we can begin to recover an accurate impression of who we are in Christ, the person he made us to be. Sometimes this means we have to break the habit of a lifetime because we've got so used to thinking of ourselves in a negative light. But this is not how God sees us. We're all precious in his sight, and he has gifted us all in different ways. When we look at ourselves clearly with God's help, we can begin to acknowledge the gifts he has placed within us. And as we begin to exercise those gifts, so they grow and develop for the good of the whole church family. Wasn't it lovely this morning to see Max playing in the corner? I don't know if you noticed him there on the drums and the guitar. That took a lot of courage, I'm sure. But he did so well. And he blessed us by using his gifts. God doesn't want us all to be the same. He wants you to be you, the best you that you can be. British people as a whole don't find it easy to say that they are good at anything. It somehow sounds a little immodest, doesn't it? But you know it's never immodest to give glory to God for a gift that he's given you. For the sake of other people, of course. It's actually completely appropriate, but it still requires courage, like standing in front of that dreadful mirror. Our team of growing leaders has been truly courageous. Because since September, they've been meeting once a month to pray and study the Bible and give time to God, asking him to reveal to them what gifts, what are, the, what are the gifts that he's given them and how they might be used for his glory. Do pray for them as they begin to see themselves through God's eyes and dare to wonder where he's going to take them on this journey of discovery. If you've forgotten who they are, although we did pray for them when they started the course, their names are all on the prayer tree. It's been in the prayer room for a while, but I thought I'd bring it out here today because it is a perfect example of what this passage is about. Do go and look at it, refresh your memory of who we're praying for, and while you're there, see if you can spot the question mark. That is there to represent those of us who are perhaps not on the course this time, but who are nonetheless searching for God's call on our life. I wonder, do you know what gift God has given you for the sake of your neighbor? Dare you name it? If not, perhaps you might consider asking him to show you or ask your Christian friends over coffee what they see in you. You might be surprised, and you will almost certainly be encouraged by what others see of God in you. Paul reminds the Ephesian church that our Christian unity is enriched by the diversity of these gifts. In fact, the New Testament offers five different lists of gifts that you might receive and twenty, and the, of the 20 or so things that they list, some are really glamorous and prestigious, like gift of tongues or prophecy and miraculous healing. They all sound very exciting, don't they? Whilst others are humble and practical, like administration and hospitality or doing acts of mercy. This church and its ministry would grind to a halt without the small army of people who quietly, Exercise their servant hearted gifts in a practical way. All the gifts are God given. In our reading, Paul highlights some. First, the apostles who were chosen by Jesus to go out and tell the good news to those who have not yet heard. The original twelve were chosen and sent out by Jesus himself, of course. But as Simon reminded us in week one of this sermon series, there is a sense in which we're all sent to witness to our friends and neighbors. The prophets of the Old Testament stood in the council of God and spoke his word faithfully to his people. They were a sort of spokesperson for God, if you like. And then evangelists, people, who have a special gift of making the gospel relevant to unbelievers. They have a passion for sharing the gospel in the unreached sections of society. And they mobilize and enthuse others to share the good news too. Pastors and teachers we all know about, they care for God's people. They offer protection and leadership and teaching. Jesus is the perfect example of all of these things, rolled into one, teacher, helper, servant, ruler, many more other things besides. But he promises to build his church by giving to each believer special gifts of divine enablement. And to the church overall, he gives gifted individuals, you and me, in fact, to help to guide, and to lead it. In the Old Testament, we have the story of Queen Esther. I don't know if you know it. Her uncle Mordecai reminds her in the story that it is no accident that she, a Jewish girl, is now queen of Persia. She can't just ignore the disturbing events outside her comfortable palace walls. He challenges her to use her gifts for the good of God's people. He says, who knows, but perhaps you have come for such a time as this. If you were to loose end this afternoon, give it a read. It's a great story tucked away between Nehemiah and Job, and it shows us how much God can use a humble person who gives all that they are in his service Paul challenges us to be who we were made to be. Secondly, he challenges us to be united. The point of all these varied gifts is not for the benefit of the individual at all. It's not to make us look good, it's to build up his body, the church. The world in which we live often focuses on image and how people see us as individuals. And we're often encouraged to respond to our own needs, even if it's at the expense of others. Rather counterculturally, spiritual gifts are given for us to use for the benefit of other people, for the benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Just as muscles that are unused waste away, they are unhealthy and weak. So also those that are used regularly grow and develop strength. When we use the gifts that we have been given, they develop and mature. As we use the gifts, we've been given growth occurs, both to those who give and those who receive. We all grow in strength and maturity. The church's goal is its own matu- maturity in unity which comes from knowing, trusting and growing up into Christ. That is to say we grow more and more into his likeness. We're not there yet but the more we know and trust Jesus the more we grow together in unity. We grow both as individuals and as a community and Paul expects us to be a community marked by humility, meekness, forbearance and love. Do you think that's a fair description of St Swithin's? Is that what people see when they walk through the door or meet us as we go about our business in the week? It's what we should be aspiring to as we hope to be a home of grace in the heart of the city. If we employ the gifts that God has given us as individuals, diverse as we are, as a community, we are all increasingly able to minister to one another and to the community in which God has placed us. This ministry to the world is not simply the work of vicars and pastors and the like. It's a privilege that God gives every single member of his family that we can be part of this calling. We all have God-given gifts, and we all have a part to play in sharing God's love to the world. We are then called to be who we're made to be. We're called to be united. And finally, we're called to be truthful. It's tempting to think that that applies just to the words we speak. But as we've been discovering over the past few weeks, the challenge runs much deeper than that. The German poet Heinrich Heiner once said, You show me your redeemed life, and I might be inclined to believe in your Redeemer. It's harsh, isn't it? It's never comfortable to be called out on something by someone who doesn't accept your faith, but Herr Heine makes a very fair point, I think. As we've been reminded over the last few weeks of this sermon series, speaking the truth in love is not actually complicated, but it is difficult because it touches every area of your life. The word in verse 15, which our version translates speaking the truth in love, is really far more reaching than that. The Greek word, alethuontes, which is a little difficult to say, alethuontes really means something along the lines of doing the truth, not just the words you speak, but truthing as a way of life. Living the truth might be a better way for us to understand it. If we were living the truth every day, people like Heinrich might not struggle to believe in our Savior because our lives would speak so eloquently of his love for every human being. If every part of our lives was fully submitted to living in a truthful, God-honoring way, I wonder what it would look like. Over the last few weeks we have explored a little how this might play out in our 21st century lives. We have tried to focus on our ways of communicating with one another particularly through technology and I know that some people have found that focus a little difficult but it's an aspect of the challenge of the Christian life that we can't ignore if we're to live the truth well. In week one, Simon reminded us that we are safe, sanctified and sent. In week two, we were challenged to live a life of integrity. And last week, Domi asked us to consider the principles behind how we engage with things like Facebook. Incidentally, Ella's family shared lots of lovely pictures of her dedication on Facebook. And in doing so, they did exactly what we've been talking about. They were transparent about their life of faith. There should be no part of our life that is not touched by our faith. If we look and find there is, perhaps we need to stand in front of that mirror for a bit longer and ask God about it. So, how does living the truth affect our communication, electronic or otherwise? May I suggest two things? First, we should speak well of people. Especially when we're not face-to-face with someone, it can be easy to be rather harsh, if not downright rude, actually. Emails and Facebook or Twitter are often criticized quite rightly for being a source of much pain in our society simply because if we're not careful, we forget we're talking to another person who's made in God's image. We need to respect this in all who come our way, whether they annoy us or not. It's not just children who suffer from bullying via Facebook. We grown-ups are often quite happy to say things electronically that we would never say to a person face to face. You might be amused to learn this whole series grew out of a conversation I had with Simon over one email I received which so infuriated me but I couldn't allow myself to respond for quite a while. In fact, I drafted my response and then deleted it four times before I felt it was safe to send because I had been so hurt by what I had read. I was, frankly, furious. And some would say rightly so. But, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Secondly, we should speak encouragement. It builds people up rather than tearing them down. Contrary to what the world seems to believe, You do not need to put your neighbor down in order to promote yourself. You are made in the image of Christ. And as such, you are a beautiful and gifted human being. And so is your neighbor. Let us, as a community, choose to build people up. To affirm the Christ-likeness in them. It's an appealing way to live, and it speaks more of God's love than any number of witty retorts or abrasive emails, even if they might seem very well-deserved. Communicating with integrity and honour is important for a Christian. So let's take up Paul's challenge to speak the truth in love. Let's live the truth. Our reading this morning reminds us that we won't be perfect this side of heaven, but that we're working towards it, growing in the likeness of Jesus as we humbly exercise the gifts God has given us for the benefit of his church. Paul challenges us to be who we were made to be, to be united and to be truthful. This week, let's make a conscious effort to live the truth, to affirm the gifts and the Christ-likeness that we see in our neighbour, and to truly be who God has made us to be, so that in this building, in our communities, and in all our communication, God's name will be honoured and his kingdom will grow here on earth. Amen.